Tonight we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, and I, I want to begin by just making a little bit of an observation I think is important for us, and not only understanding how the Bible came into being, but how it speaks and relates to us in particular ways. One of the things that we, in talking about holy men of God, as Scripture describes the writing of Scriptures, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that God moved in them, and God moved through them, and spoke through them, and so forth, it wasn't a dynamic of what we call automatic writing. It wasn't like Mark sat down and suddenly had the Holy Spirit seize hold of his hand and just started writing on the, you know, the paper and he couldn't control it. He really was still himself. And what we find in every book of the Bible is that the personality of the writer is reflective in, in how he expresses his revelation and his vision of God. And, and that doesn't take away from the inspiration. In fact, what it does is it personalizes the biblical books in a way that really matter to us and become relatable to us on a daily basis. That's why as I teach through these different books, one of the things I attempt to do is try to really identify what I think is the distinct personality notation about that particular book. And, and certainly we talked a little bit last week about Matthew and his background and how so much of what he wrote became reflective of how Christ impacted him personally. And so he told the story of the, of the life of Jesus from that personal perspective. That's why we have four different gospels. We really get the four quadrants of the compass when it talks about personal experience with God. And the same thing is true when we talk about Mark's gospel. Mark came into his experience of Jesus in a way that was much different than Matthew's. And it shaped and molded him. And let me begin by saying, really, he has the perspective of someone who had to go the, through the humiliation of self-righteousness. In other words, one of these people who would see himself as being really kind of a really good guy from a great background, he has all the right accoutrements to make him successful in whatever enterprise, secular or religious, he might go into. And ironically, before he can ever become truly usable by God, he has to have that stuffing knocked out of him. And that's something that none of us really like to contemplate in great depth, although if you've had yourself emptied by God in that way, you understand that as someone put it so clearly one time, they said that unless the grape is, is crushed or unless the olive is crushed, the oil and the wine can never flow. And the same thing is true in your life and my life, that as someone once said, that those whom God loves deeply, He wounds even more deeply. And I, again, when you say that to people, people aren't going to say, where do I sign up for that experience, you know? But you don't have to sign up because it will come into your life without invitation, without welcome, without your permission, but it will come because when we talk about Christ having taken control of your life, when He says we're the love of Christ uh, co compels us. As I talked about last Sunday, it's this, it's this pressing in of God upon our life that He literally kind of squeezes you out like a tube of toothpaste until He has emptied it completely. Now, unlike me, when I squeeze out toothpaste, I can't get it back in the tube. But God doesn't want to put the paste back in the tube. He wants to fill this vessel, this earthen vessel, with treasure from above. And that great exchange has to take place in order for us to mature, to grow, to become useful to God. 
And so if you consider yourself to be brilliant, you will come to a place where God will convince you you are the stupidest person on the planet. If you're strong, God will convince you of your weakness. Uh, if you're moral, He'll expose you to things in your life that will make you uh, afraid to even suggest that into the future. And so it goes. And so I say that all by, you know, kind of introduction, because what I find is that Mark's gospel is, is probably, of all the four, the most critical of the failings of the apostles of any of the rest. I mean, he has more comments, and I don't have time to go through them all, but more times does he have Jesus basically saying to them things like, are you disturbed? Uh, are you dull? Uh, do you, are you telling me you don't know this? I mean, it's the kind of thing that none of us likes to hear, especially from God incarnate. But nonetheless, Jesus is saying that to them because they are repeatedly so amazingly obtuse. Now, is Peter, or excuse me, is Mark approaching this from that kind of arrogance that you and I often display when we say things like that, where we think they're dumb and we're not? No, in fact, he had come to that perspective through his own failings. This is a guy who fell very flat on his face at some critical moments in his life, as you and I certainly will. But giving you that kind of a little bit of a, a coloring of the, of the gospel, let's begin by talking about what I often refer to as the vital statistics, kind of the, the, kind of the data background, which is really important, I think, uh, to being really informed about what this gospel is focused on. That first of all, the question of who is the author, and we just assume we see Mark at the top of it, and yet, as you read through it, you'll never find Mark's name ever mentioned in it, even though John Mark, as his full name is a list given to us, is one of the most me repeatedly mentioned individuals in the entire biblical narrative. And that may surprise people, but we have more information in the biblical account, especially in the book of Acts and the letters, than we do of almost every other character other than Paul and Peter. I mean, Matthew, we know virtually nothing about his story except from traditional histories. He's never mentioned as a player in the book of Acts in the early church. He may have, we don't know what, what that, why that is, we have no explanation, but Mark is upfront and present throughout the biblical account of the building of the church. Uh, the second century writer, Papias, church father, who was a, a, the bishop of Hierapolis, said basically in his accounts of the gospel, he wrote a, a voluminous uh, work on the gospels, and he said, Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. Uh, Irenaeus, who would write often, come, was uh, right after Papias, said, Mark, the disciple interpreter of Peter, himself also handed down to us in writing the things preached by Peter. So what both of these authors tell us, and I mean, these are men who were contemporary with Mark and other people. Uh, many of them had actually heard some of the apostles speak as they were first in the faith. Their report to us, and we think it is accurate, is that basically what Mark did was take the words of Peter and put them into this gospel. So in a way, when we read it, we're reading Peter's report. So again, when I say that the estimation of the apostles is always kind of a diminutive kind of view, he's always kind of speaking about their dunderheadedness, that essentially we're listening to Peter by giving his own self-disclosure. That Peter is essentially saying, we never got it, and when we thought we did, it turned out to be wrong. 
And, you know, and that's, that's one of those things that speaks to the authenticity of the Gospels. Because believe me, if you or I had been writing the Gospels, there would have been Jesus and then his secondary hero, me. I mean, that's kind of the way we, we approach things, right? We don't, we don't, it's hard for us to be transparently honest about how, you know, challenged we are on so many different levels in life. And yet we find in the Gospels this honesty about who they are. We see it in Paul's writing. And part of that, it's important for us to understand, is when you have been set free from having to try to win the way, the way of the world, and you find that you're fulfilled and content in Christ, you're free to be who you are and, and, and not feel like you have to be living in shame or living a life that's always kind of pretending that you've got it together when, in fact, you often don't. And there's a, just a tremendous liberty that comes with that. That It's like I, I heard someone say recently, once you've almost died from cancer, nothing else matters anymore. And I, I thought it was interesting because people come to this, this death and life experience, they suddenly realize, you know what? I have been really, really climbing up a ladder that's been leaned against the wrong wall for way too long, and I'm just not going to live my life like that. I'm going to live my life honestly and transparently. How true that should be for us who have died in Christ and have really experienced a new life. And when we find ourselves struggling against those things, what's really going on is we really haven't surrendered yet. There are portions of our life that we're still trying to live within the context of this world, and we haven't yielded them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ yet. Well, we know that the internal evidence certainly supports Peter's uh, uh, not his penmanship, but certainly his inspiration behind this, that Mark mentions Peter more than any other of the Gospels do. He's more prominent in the stories. There's not a single event that takes place where Peter isn't present in the event and in the story. So essentially, that is not because he's trying to puff up Peter, but basically, Peter is the eyewitness who is reporting on the things that he saw, that he heard, and that he experienced. So uh, the question really becomes, who again was Mark, or as he's referred to as John Mark? Um, it's interesting because his families apparently were early followers of Jesus and were members of the first church because in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, when Peter is imprisoned and then the angel releases him, where does he go? He goes to John Mark's house. In fact, it says he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So we know that one of the first churches in Jerusalem was in Mark's house. How old he was at that time, we're not told. Some suggest that he could have been pre-teen or early teenage years. But it's also, we find as we go on, that he's a cousin of Barnabas and an early companion of Paul. In fact, in, in Acts 12, 25, when Paul and Barnabas are, are sent to Jerusalem with an offering to relieve the saints, they're in the city of Antioch, and they go down to Jerusalem with money to help the saints who were being persecuted and were going through difficult times. It says when they returned uh, to Jerusalem, they took with them John, who was also called Mark. And so they took this young man with them and brought him back to Antioch, which was up in the north in, in what we call today modern-day Turkey. Uh, it says, and, when they, arrived, and, and they, when they went on their first missionary journey, they take John Mark with them. It says, they, they, when they arrived at Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus, uh, they proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. 
So he's a, he's a participant in the building of the early church. But then something happens, and we're told in Acts 13 that, that John Mark deserted them. We're not told why. But it says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, we could say, well, we don't know. He may have just, you know, gone home or, or, or something. But it really becomes later on in chapter 15 when they're preparing for their second missionary journey and Barnabas and Paul are talking about it, that it becomes apparent that, <clears throat> that there was some uh, unfortunate circumstances behind his decisions because it says, Paul did not think it wise to take John Mark with him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. He had literally uh, left them in the lurch and had not continued with them in the work and then it says they had such a sharp disagreement, Paul and Barnabas, that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. So it's an interesting little view, a little window into the real life personalities of the early apostles. They were people who got angry and had disagreements as well as you and I do. And they hear these two godly men were so at odds with each other, they split up and went in different directions and didn't work with each other for quite a while. Um, <clears throat> whose fault was that? I'm not taking sides. Uh, we're not told <laughs> who, who's, who was the guilty party, which usually suggests both. But you know, in that way, it usually is. But later on, there's a reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas. Again, not told why, but in writing the Colossians, when Paul is in his first imprisonment, he said, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And he says, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And again, in 2 Timothy 4.11, when Paul is in his second imprisonment, he writes to Timothy and says, only Luke was with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. And so it's interesting that not only had there been a reconciliation, but there had become a real deep working companionship that had grown up between Paul and Mark, even though at one time they had been divided over uh, really a failure on Mark's part. But you see, that's, that's the interesting thing because I don't think it was the first time that Mark had fallen on his face. And I, I can't say this with, with uh, authority, but I can say it as a matter of, I think, uh, informed speculation. Because there's a story in, in Mark's gospel that only appears in Mark's gospel. And it has a, such an interesting ring to it. We, we read in chapter 10 that there's a, a wealthy young man, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he, he says, how basically, what is the secret to eternal life? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And he said, I've kept them all since my youth. Then Jesus, so Jesus responds, and he says, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And it says, at this, at this the man's face fell, he went away and said, sad, because he had great wealth. <clears throat> now, What's even more interesting is when we come to the end of the gospel, when Jesus is arrested, it says when they come to take Jesus that there's a, another young fellow who's there. It says that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Because, first of all, 
He has nothing else to wear except a linen garment. A linen garment was a very expensive garment. So, you, you know, poor people who couldn't afford clothing didn't wear linen garments. So here was somebody who had wealth and no longer had wealth, and he's following Jesus. <clears throat> I personally think he went away sorrowful, repented, and decided, I'm going to obey and following Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> as a result, it says, when they seized him, uh, he fled naked, or as my wife says from New Mexico, naked, uh, <laughs> but leaving his garment behind. I like to speculate <clears throat> that that same individual is actually our Mark that we're reading about here, and that he has his experience of being really a, a failing and a falling down. And yet, as is true for all of us, no matter how much we stumble, as I said last Sunday, when we fall, we fall forward into the hands of Jesus. That God uses your fallings, your failings, your shortcomings to further your journey because what those failings create is a brokenness and a humility that makes us usable by God. My pastor used to always say that God is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. And the problem is that <clears throat> there are a lot of talented people who you know, want to do it their way. But God says, I'm looking for someone who not, I'll give them whatever tools they need to become successful, but I want them to do it as I want them to do it. So anyway, when was the Gospel of Mark written? Well, it was written before Matthew, we know, because 90% of the accounts that we have in the Matthew's Gospel are found in the, in the totality of Mark's Gospel. In fact, 50% of Luke's Gospel is taken from Mark. In fact, when I say taken, I mean that we have like 235 verses in Matthew and in Luke that are almost identical in word and everything as they are within Mark's gospel. And that's why Mark is believed by most scholars today to be the first gospel that was written, the earliest written, uh, the oldest one that formed really kind of the outline or the template from which the other gospel accounts were written. Again, you would say, well, why in the world would we write, have other gospel accounts? And the answer is really simple because, again, we talked about writing to different audiences. And that is certainly true for Mark's gospel because Clement of Alexandria said that it was written within the city of Rome that as Peter was there in Rome, basically that Mark was with him. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he said, she who is in Babylon, the she's referring to the church. Babylon is a code reference to the city of Rome. He says, chosen together with you, send you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. So we know that Paul was in Rome. We know that Mark was with him in Rome. And if you add to that his name, his name is John, Yohanan in Hebrew, which uh, is a, a good Jewish name, but the name Mark is not a Jewish name. It's Latin, it's Marcus, it's a Roman name, and repeatedly we're told that he is referred to as Marcus, not as John, which tells me that he was living in a, a Latin-speaking culture, again, probably in Rome. We also find that <clears throat> as he writes it, he has to explain Jewish customs to his readers, these are not people who are Jews by, by background. They don't understand Jewish ways. In fact, he tells us in Mark 7 too, he said, he saw some, some saw some of his disciples eating food with their hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. And then he says, parenthetically, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing 
holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Anybody with a very, even a slight Jewish exposure at that time would have known all of this. I mean, it's, even today, it's, it's abundantly obvious that these are practices amongst the Orthodox Jews. And, but he has to explain it to his readers because they don't know that. He translates certain Aramaic words. In fact, in chapter 15, when he uses the word Golgotha, which is an Aramaic term, uh, which he says, which means the place of the skull. You see, Calvary is skull in Latin. Golgotha is the term that they would speak in Aramaic, which was the street language of the Jews at that time. We also see in sharp contrast to Matthew's gospel that he only quotes once from the Old Testament. Remember, we talked about Matthew last week, 75 quotes from the, or 50 quotes from the Old Testament, <coughs> 75 uh, indirect and direct references to Old Testament events. Only one passage from the Old Testament is quoted in the entire Mark, and that's in the first chapter, where he says in verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So that all of that put together tells us that certainly this was a Gentile audience, very likely a Roman audience that was uh, being addressed in the city of Rome at the time. What makes Mark different is that, first of all, the style of writing is so distinct. As I said, there's only one major discourse. Matthew had five. There's only one, and that's chapter 13. But one of the things we see is that the pace of the action is intense. Um, the word immediately, or at least the, the Greek word, euthos, is used 46 different times in the, in the gospel of Mark. Over and over again, like in verse 42, it says, immediately the leprosy left him. And then he says, he sent him away at once. And in verse 12, he says, at once the Spirit sent him into the desert. In verse 20, without delay, he called them. In verse 28, news about him spread quickly. There's kind of this, this uh, sense of Jesus moving in power and authority in a very direct and interactive way, something that would have been very attractive to a Roman. Romans liked action. They didn't really care for people who gave long speeches and didn't do anything. They wanted things done quickly and decisively. And that's how he's, Jesus is portrayed. He moves in. In fact, I, I love what Tim Keller said in his book on, the, uh, on the, the cross of Christ. He said, Mark's very sentence tells us that God has broken into history. His style communicates a sense of crisis, that the status quo has been ruptured. Jesus has come, and anything can happen. This idea that, that the power of God has burst upon the scene to change the world, and, and it will never be the same again. It, there's even, secondly, a, a vividness in the way that Mark describes something, because he kind of writes in a colorfulness or a living color that you don't see in, in, in many of the other Gospels. When he talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000 in chapter uh, 6, he tells us little details like he separated them and had them sit on the green grass. Uh, none of the other writers make any references like that, the, that the grass was green, which tells us what time of year it was when this event took place. The other writers don't bother to mention that. And again, in 
chapter 6, when it talks about the beheading of John the Baptist, he's the only one that adds the detail that after John is beheaded, that <clears throat> he says they, they brought back his head on a platter. I mean, that's a picturesque uh, telling of it, isn't it? You know, the others don't tell us that. It's just that, he, you know, he lost his head. But the idea that his head is put on a platter and he's, he's brought in, I don't know if they put an apple in his mouth or how they did, but it's, it's a very picturesque showing, a depiction of what took place that is really kind of characteristic. So when you're reading it next time, start looking for those little notations that kind of jump out and it'll begin to stick in your brain. Thirdly, <clears throat> He speaks of the compassion of Jesus for the average person. In fact, in, in verse 41 of, of chapter 1, when he describes the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he says, he was filled with compassion. Again, in, in chapter 6, when Jesus landed and he started a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he says he viewed them like sheep who didn't have a shepherd. Again, in chapter 8, he says, I have compassion on these people. Now, the word in the original there is a really interesting word because it's different than, than compassion as we use the word compassion. When I say, well, I, I feel compassionate for you, it means that I feel, I feel genuinely bad for you. If I say that I have pity for you, I, I, I think, thank goodness that's not happening to me. That's what the word pity, when I say, I pity you, it means, thank goodness that isn't happening to me. But this is the word more the idea of empathy. Empathy means that I enter into and share and help carry the weight of your burden. And there's something about empathy. People cannot empathize who have not experienced what you've experienced. I mean, it's, I have people that will tell me, uh, will share with me and ask for prayer for situations that, I mean, I do feel really badly for them, but I have never been in what they've been through. And if they're going to really get some, some uh, comfort through their struggle, they need somebody who has been there. That's why the most effective communication is when people say, boy, I know exactly what you're saying. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what my journey was like. And when you hear somebody echoing what you've gone through, it's a powerful comfort. Well, it says that when Jesus had that capacity, that when he looked on people, he didn't just see them as sinners in need of a Savior. He understood how the depravity of sin had ravaged and damaged their lives and what it had done for them. And that's why we see in other Gospels, for example, when Jesus is standing over the city of Jerusalem and he sees what's coming in their future, he weeps. He weeps in travail. He literally is going into a grieving, a mourning for the people of Israel because he says, I know, I see what's going to happen to you. I, mean, I see that what's going to overtake your life. So this really stands out because there's this, even though we see this action figure who's moving and doing, and he's not motivated by the, the lust or the ability to thrust power around like Thor or some other ancient god. He's a god who is powerful, but he is a god who is compassionate and loving and ultimately and supremely good. But last of all, when what comes out in his message is that the end is near. If you will, that we find that the Mark's gospel kind of builds towards this idea that Jesus is coming. That not only did he come and suffer and die, but he's coming to reign and to rule. Uh, in fact, in Mark 1.15, he opens the whole gospel account in the 15th verse by saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. 
And that really becomes the theme. That's really what's motivating Mark in writing this. He wants to get this message into the heads and into the hearts of those who are listening to him. So that when we start with his baptism, we find that a voice speaks from heaven and says what? It says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right away, Jesus is declared in the first chapter as being the son of God. And you've you got to keep in mind that if you say the Son of God to a Jewish community, they're thinking Messiah. <clears throat> you say it to a Gentile or Roman community, they're thinking God incarnate. So that when Mark says he, he is the Son of God, he's literally, God has come down from heaven and is now visibly present in our midst. At Caesarea Philippi, when he's there with his disciples towards the last six months of his public ministry, we have the, the, the confession of Peter who says to him in chapter 8, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. Here we have messiahship and deity blended together in one statement. And then at the transfiguration, it says, John, Peter tells him later on, we heard this voice come out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Even at his trial before Caiaphas in chapter 14, Caiaphas asked the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. I mean, there's no equivocating around about him at all. And he comes around and says, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, notice Mark's emphasis. He is coming back to rule, to reign, to conquer on the Mount of Olives, as he's in what we call the Olivet Discord, chapter 13, which is the only chapter that's almost exclusively Jesus' teaching, the only major discourse in the entire gospel. It says, at that time, Jesus said, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then finally, at his crucifixion, as Jesus expires on the cross, we're told that the centurion who was overseeing his execution, he says he stood opposite to him, and Jesus cried out like this and breathed his last, and then this centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Again, from a Roman perspective, deity become flesh. So from beginning to end, the, the, the thing that John Mark wants to communicate to us is that Jesus is God, and Jesus died on the cross, but He has risen and coming back, and when He returns, He will come back with great power and victory. Now, <clears throat> why did He write this? Why, what was it really the end view He had when He was preparing this gospel? And there, it, it, I can summarize it all up in one simple word, and the word's encouragement. And I think it's encouragement particularly to persevere in the face of what was growing opposition and persecution. We know that at the time, Nero was on the throne. He was the emperor. And Nero was a man uh, who was insane. I don't know how else to put it. He was a narcissist who had gone completely sociopathic. He was completely nuts. And eventually the Praetorian Guard murdered him uh, because... He, he had to be stopped. His own guards took his life. But the point was that before this, he had set Rome on fire. At least that's what we believe. In 64 AD, of the 30 uh, different districts in Rome, 16 of them burned to the ground, burned to dust. So, I mean, half the population was left without homes. I mean, it's, it was an amazing disaster. And it was purposely set 
They knew it was purposely set, and there's only one person who would do that, and that would be the emperor, because on the heels of the burning of the city, then he began to rebuild a new, more glorious city that would be more representative of his greatness in his own mind. But when he began to be criticized and suspicion began to go in his direction, he identified a a little-known, weird group of people that nobody seemed to like, and he said, well, they're the ones who did it. And as a result, the persecution fell on the Christians. This is the same persecution that would bring to death Paul first, and then later on Peter. But we we, have to, we need to also understand that this was the first official Roman persecution, one of 10 that they would experience over the next 250 years. So on an average, every generation, every 25 years, Rome would raise a persecution to wipe out Christianity, which had the uh, frustrating effect of every time they did, the church got bigger. As people watched the way that the Christians joyfully accepted death at the hands of their executioners, uh, it began to move people's hearts with compassion, and many of them ended up converting to Christ. But up to this time, before this, Rome had not persecuted the Christians because Christianity was viewed as part of Judaism, and Judaism was a legal religion. It wasn't until after this that Christianity was ruled as separate from Judaism and declared an illegal religion, and then it began to be persecuted. So Rome had legal freedom, but they did not allow freedom of religion unless they had been pre-approved to be a honored religion. And part of the problem was that they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar and declare him as God, which was a requirement uh, for everyone except for the Jews, and that's a complicated story I don't have time to get into. But nonetheless, up to this time, all the persecutions had been brought to them either by local authorities or else even before that, by the Jews themselves. So this was the beginning of a time of intense opposition and persecution. And the best way to overcome the difficulties in the present moment is the hope of the future. And that's what John John Mark is putting before these, these Christians. He's saying, you need to realize in the end, we overcome. In the end, we are the victors. In the end, Christ will come and set up his kingdom upon the earth and we will overcome these, these circumstances. And, and along with that, I say a secondary part of that is it's encouragement not to fail to fulfill their mission. Because the natural human response when we begin to go through difficulties is to pull back. I mean, that's just, that's just given. We, none of us like pain. None of us like stress and difficulty. And so when we step out to do something and we begin to encounter opposition, the natural wiring of the, of the human animal, if you will, is to simply pull back and avoid the discomfort. You know, that's why we don't leave our hand on the hot fire. We pull it back immediately. And yet God has called us to endure suffering, to, to go forward, and to basically, if God is sending us out to keep going forward, what becomes marked, marked, remarkable about Paul and becomes something that we mark about his ministry was, despite all of the incredible hardships that he endured, he just kept going, and he kept going, and he kept going, and he kept going. And in the end, nobody ever lost more battles and won more wars than Paul. He conquered the world with, with, his, with the message of the gospel because he just didn't stop. 
And so when he says in, in chapter 16 at the end of the book, in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, he's calling them not only to stand fast in the face of opposition and difficulties, but to press on and to keep going forward. And I would say that in, in somewhat of a conclusion to all of this, that what we need to really, I think, take away when we read this particular gospel is that when it's all said and done, our definitive purpose for being here is not to build churches or ministries or organizations or even to do works of benevolence and all the rest. As good and fine as all that may be, that's not our really our defining or supposed to be our defining purpose. Our defining purpose is that we are about bringing that message to the world, starting with a person who's right next to me at any given moment. When he says, go into all the world, that means that I have to, to get to, <clears throat> to Rome or to, to Russia or any place like that. I have to go through Spokane. I have to go through my own neighborhood. And the idea is that he later, as he says in Acts chapter 1, starting at Jerusalem, then Judea, then go to Samaria, and then go to all the world. Many times we think that fulfilling this command is to simply hopscotch from where we are into some far-flung place uh, across the world. Well, that may be true. I'm not saying that people aren't called to do that. But in the general sense, when you have a community of believers like this in the city of Spokane, what is to be the first and foremost mission field that is in, right in front of us? And it's the place where we live. It's the people all around us, the people in the gas station, the grocery store. That part of what that means is we begin to pray in our own life, not just corporately, certainly corporately, but not just alone corporately, but in our own personal life, we begin to ask God that we might be on mission every day of our life. Because in one sense, we are without being able to help it. I know that all of my neighbors know I'm a Christian. Well, they know I'm a pastor. I'm not sure if they know I'm a Christian. You know, it's this idea that they know who I am. I mean, it's no mystery. They seem to know a lot about me, far more than I know about them. So that you realize that you are being viewed by the people around you. They're watching how you live your life. And that's where you sit down and say, okay, God, help me to live my life not perfectly, but help me to live my life honestly for you. A friend of mine was having lunch with a few weeks ago, put it really well. He said, I think that the key to holiness is honesty. Because unless you get honest with God, you can never really allow the Holy Spirit to move and work in our lives. So you sit back and say, okay, why does God take me through these difficult things in my life? I'm convinced it's to get me to tell the truth on myself. It's not like God doesn't already know everything about me. He sees everything. There's no secrets that, are, that I can hide from God. And yet, when you go through those difficult times where God is squeezing you, how do you find that you end up getting relief? Isn't it by saying, search me, O God, and know my heart, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, that. <laughs> we have to talk about that? You know, and you actually get honest with God, and you start saying, God, I recognize that's in me. I, I, I confess it to you. I ask you to forgive me for it. And that's where God can begin to take you places. But oftentimes, before we can ever get there, we have to go through what Mark went through. We have to go through those falling down experiences. And to discover that when I fall down, I don't fall out, but I fall forward. I fall right into His hands. 
And suddenly, <coughs> excuse me, and suddenly I become something that he can use. I become malleable in his hands. He, can, he, he becomes the potter that can shape and mold me after the image of his will to accomplish his purposes. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would uh, let what I've shared this evening mean something of value in the hearts and the minds of your people. You know, Lord, how that every one of us confront challenges on a daily basis, that, that sometimes we, we are victorious and sometimes uh, we, we suffer from an evil heart of unbelief. You know that sometimes in our quiet times we beat ourselves up, that all we can see is what's not in our life instead of recognizing what glorious things are. Help us, Lord, to be delivered from the idea that, that our struggles indicate that we're not good enough or we're not valuable enough or that if we don't get it right the first time, then we're of no use. But rather, help us realize, God, that your grip on us is so tight your purposes are so set in eternity that your will will be done. That your will is going to be done in our lives. But it has to begin with us relinquishing our claim to the rights to our own selves. That, Lord, we would just relinquish that claim, that we would recognize that you are the King. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior that you created everything and everything exists for you, that our lives should live, move, and have their very essence of being in you. Bring us that place, Lord, of total surrender, we pray in Jesus' name.